0: That's Genesis chapter 12 verses 1 to 4. And because it's a little toasty in here, I'm not going to ask you to stand. I'm also going to read John 3:16. That's our premise verse. For the entire series so remember that we're doing a series on love letters from God and our love letter from God and our idea is is that every single book in the Bible gives us an indication of what it looks like for God to love us and so our key verse for the entire series one that we preached on a couple weeks ago is John 3:16. for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And then we're going to read from Genesis 12, 1 through 4. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. Let us pray. Hide me behind your cross, Lord. May my words be your heart. You have told us you love us. Help us to know your love and live it every day of our lives. Amen. I love to read. I threatened to go on strike in kindergarten because we were playing with blocks and dolls and I wasn't learning how to read and I was very, very annoyed by this. So my mother promised that she would teach me how to read over the summer and she did. And when I went back to first grade, I was reading at a fifth grade level. By the time I got to third grade, I was reading at college level. And I tell you all of this not to brag on myself, but just to tell you that I really, really love to read, and I love books. I'm a fan of books. All books. Uh, You can ask my husband. When we move, there's lots of boxes of books. (laughs) I love horror stories and love stories and adventure stories. I adore dystopian novels. They're so much fun. But I like histories and biographies. If you print it on a page, I probably would love to read it. All good books have one thing in common. They start well. And the Bible is no exception. When I was growing up, I was not a fan of the Bible. I did not think that that was the greatest book to read at all. Uh, I was way more into my fiction. Um, I at one time had every Stephen King novel up to uh, about five or six years ago. I had every Stephen King novel in hardcover in my collection. And uh, I'm one of those people that usually when I read a book, I don't tend to read it more than once. Um, I have two really big exceptions to that. One of them is C.S. Lewis. Uh, I love The Chronicles of Narnia, and I read them just about every year. Uh, And then the other one is Stephen King's The Stand which is a weird combination, Uh, I admit that, but it is one of those things where I just, I really enjoy that story, and so I like to read it. And until uh, I became a Christian, to me, the Bible was just a really bad story. Then I read Genesis. And if you've ever, if you've never read Genesis, um, I highly recommend it. Genesis is great. You start with nothing. And you move into creation and this big giant flood with this guy who randomly gets told to build a boat. And he builds a boat on dry land in the middle of nowhere. And by the way, before there were carts to like haul it to a lake or something, So he's building this gigantic boat. There's no semis. He's not going to hook it up to a trailer. They're not going to slap a wide load sticker on it and drag it to a, a, a waterway. He's building a giant boat on dry land in the middle of a desert. That's crazy. But it's also a really compelling story. And then There's this giant flood, covers the whole earth, and the boat actually floats. And it works as a boat, and it saves the family. And then they come out of the boat, and generations go by, and this family of Abram, his dad, has all this property and all these animals, and he's a nomad. So he lives in tents, and they move from place to place. But family has become really, really important to these folks. They all live in family groups. It's how you survive. You protect each other. You keep each other close. And they had a polytheistic culture, which means they had multiple gods, lots of gods. But they had heard the stories of this one God. They knew the stories of this one God. And Abram has a problem. Abram is 75 years old and he has no children. His wife is 65 years old and she has been barren. They live in this place and time where family is really important. And how you deal with your property is you pass it on to your family. We think of family as pretty important too, but we have other safeguards to protect us from things. They had bandits and things that could only be protected by having a large clan that could protect themselves. And into this space where Abram is not having children comes... God, who makes him a promise. We're going to come back to that promise, but after Abram, Abram does eventually have a child. He has a child when he is 100 years old. He tries to circumvent and has a child right before that, but uh, he and Sarah have the child of the promise at 100 and 90, respectively. So they have a child. Then he goes off and he gets married, and he has twins, the worst twins ever, by the way. They are complete opposites from each other. They hate each other. They fight all the time. One of them tricks the other one twice, once into giving up his birthright for a bowl of stew, and once into uh, being gone while he takes and steals the blessing from his father. Jacob goes off to try and find a spouse back with his mother's people, and when he gets there, he finds that, Maybe trickery runs in the family because his uncle, whom he goes to to get a bride, promises him one daughter and then marries him to the second daughter and in exchange steals 14 years of hard labor from Jacob. When Jacob finally gets to the point where he's like, okay, dude, I have done everything you've asked for. I've gotten both the wives. And he takes off. He spends a night in the desert and wrestles with God. And it is at that point that Jacob surrenders himself. Jacob fears meeting his brother again, because he's going to encounter him. And they find that they are much, much closer to each other now that they've been apart for a really long time. So they reconcile, but find different places to hang out. They don't overlap anymore. Jacob has 12 sons. 12. His last son steals from him the wife that he wanted so badly that he really loved. His wife, Leah, He married out of coercion, but he doesn't really love her, but she gives him tons of children. So there's all that drama happening in the middle of this. Then Joseph is kind of a brat. He tattles on his brothers when they don't work. And then his brothers, because they're really sweet people too, they kidnap him and sell him to the Egyptians. The Egyptians then throw Joseph in prison after the people that Joseph is working for accuse him of something that he didn't do. He spends 12 years in prison for a crime he didn't commit. And when he finally gets out of prison, he's made a huge leader of Egypt, like second in command to the Pharaoh. His family is living in famine now, so they come to Egypt to get help, but they don't recognize their brother, who they by now have assumed is actually dead, which is the story that they told their dad. Joseph recognizes them right off the bat. I'm gonna guess, That in the time he has been in Egypt, there hasn't been many days that have gone by that he hasn't thought about his brothers in one way or another. Maybe some days he really couldn't wait to see them because he had some things to say. Maybe other days he really couldn't wait to see them because he had some things to say. But when they come to him what he really wants from them is to bring his dad back because he hasn't seen his father in a really long time so he manipulates them that's kind of the family history thing happening here he manipulates them into bringing dad and when they bring dad and he finally reveals himself to them they have a big family reunion The brothers realize they need Joseph, and Joseph, he realizes he needs them. And at the very end of the story, Jacob finally dies, and when Jacob dies, Joseph's brothers are really worried about what's gonna happen now. You see, they don't think that Joseph has really forgiven them. They think he's only forgiven them for the sake of their father. And Joseph tells them, you meant everything you did to me for harm, but God meant it for good. And we end this story with them kind of living at the end of Genesis in Egypt, well-respected, well-cared for, and taken care of. Now, I don't know about you, but that's like, six or seven or ten different novels, like all wrapped up into one. And the difference is, is that that story is true. And so it's fun and exciting and there's danger. There's more in that story than even I could tell you in five minutes. But it all really kind of starts or hinges on this moment when God says to Abram, go. And then at the very end of it, so Abram went. You see, I think this story changes if Abram doesn't go. If God says to him, go, and Abram says, um, no. All of the rest of what happens, maybe different characters pop in. I don't know. But at this point, this is how we see the beginning of God's redemption plan start to happen. It goes through all of those people who aren't really great people, by the way. You heard, right? They're manipulative and tricksters. They're kind of mean to each other. Brothers are not very friendly. All of those things are happening. But God is working and God is moving. we see it starts with this. And what's really, really cool about this section of verses, where God says to Abram, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. Your name will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. In the middle of that blessing... Actually, at the end of that blessing, we see a moment where God is talking about us. You see, Abram's blessing didn't end with Joseph. It didn't end with Moses or Jesus or Paul. Abram's blessing continues. Every single person who believes on Jesus is part of this blessing that was made to Abram all those years ago. Man, that's a pretty faithful God. He made a blessing to some guy in a desert. It still applies to us. It's still being honored Through us. The blessing God promised Abram continues through us because we are the result of Abram's obedience. So Abram went and all this other stuff happened. God started his redemption plan with Abram in that desert. And Abram took a step of faith and trusted God for what happened next. We're going to spend the next weeks going through the rest of the books of the Bible and talking about all the ways that God shows up. And God continues his redemption plan. And God shows us over and over and over again how much he loves us. And every single week I'm going to close with the same set of paragraphs. You might get tired of hearing it, but it's important, I think, for us to continue to hear over and over and over again What does it mean to say God loves? God loved us enough to create us, to form us from the dust. God loved us enough to let us fall, to let us choose our own way over God's, to let us chain ourselves to sin and defeat and heartbreak and sorrow and death. God loved us enough to provide a rescue, a way back, through wanderers, murderers, adulterers, defaulters, promise breakers, foreigners, strangers, and lovers. God loved us enough to show us mothers, judges, kings, and prophets who loved and spoke for God and kept reminding us of the promise of redemption. God loved us enough to show us how evil and wrong continually mess things up, and how obedience to God fosters holiness and bestows blessing. God loved us enough to send us Jesus, the only begotten son of God, to preach and live peace, grace, hope, joy, and love. God loved us enough to see Jesus rejected, to see him die, to see him buried. God loved us enough to raise Jesus from the dead and send the Holy Spirit to remind us of all we have in him and empower us to live like him. God loved us enough to want us to live like Jesus, an abundant life infused with all the fruit of the Spirit, redeemed, free, loved. God loved us enough to still let us choose our destiny. God loved us enough to promise the hope of forever, of resurrection from the dead and judgment. God loved us enough. God loves us enough. God will always love us enough. For God so loved the world, God loves you. God wants you to know it. God wants you to live in it. God wants you to be able to love others because you know you are loved. And God's love is expressed to us every week, most tangibly, as we gather at this table. The son who died and yet lives gave everything so we could know the depth of God's love. So come, drink the wine, eat the bread, know you are loved, God loves you, go love the world with him.